Being a school teacher seems like hard work. It's never ending, it's often thankless, and working with children can be difficult. But the best teachers are those who have a passion for education. And that's what made them become teachers in the first place. They're driven by the desire to impact the lives of young people and give them the education they need to lead meaningful lives. Those are the type of teachers who show up the most prepared and are the most passionate and engaging about going the extra mile to truly educate their children. But not all teachers are like this. Some have lost sight, it seems, of the goal of true education. And maybe it's due to the pressures of a school district, but some teachers seem to operate with the goal of just standardized testing in mind or certain pass rates in mind. Maybe they've been told from up above that they need a certain scores on standardized tests. And so their functional goal has shifted from the broad, holistic, just education of children to simply helping them pass some tests. And this shift in aim will greatly affect their teaching style and their substance. For example, who really cares about the motives and the logic behind the U.S. Constitution? That's not going to be on the test, so let's just skip that. Just memorize these dates, memorize these events, That's it. Don't worry about why they matter. Just memorize the facts. I don't know about you, but that was like my high school. And you can see how a a subtle shift in a teacher's goal or aim would greatly alter their teaching. And that the simple principle is if you you change the target or the goal of something, it's going to drastically alter what you do and typically have negative results. And this principle certainly holds true for the Christian ministry. And there is a goal to Christian ministry. There's a clear and well-defined target, but some ministers have lost sight of that target. They've instead set their sights on another target altogether, a different target, wrong target, and that's a problem. And in an archery competition, a bullseye is great, so long as you're hitting your own target. If you get a bullseye on someone else's target, it, it counts for nothing. And likewise, there are some Christian ministers who are, they're absolutely nailing their target and they're achieving their goals. The problem is it's just that, it's their goals. It's not the Lord's goals, it's just their goals. And therefore, their so-called success counts for nothing before the Lord. And for a lot of ministers in America today, what is their target? What's the aim of their ministry? And I think we know for a lot, the answer is simply just church growth. We've got a building here, and our goal each week is just to fill the building. And the success of this ministry is going to be measured by how full or empty this building is on any Sunday morning. And that functionally becomes the minister's aim. And this may be tied to other goals. You know, more people equals more money. More money equals more programs, bigger buildings, and kind of so it goes. But you can see how this shift in target or aim would drastically alter the, the nature of the ministry. A minister's style and substance will follow his goal. And that's why so many churches have given up on the preaching of the word of God, the administration of the ordinances, and true worship. And those methods just aren't that effective in filling a building anymore. You know, it said sermons that are less preachy, more motivational, do much better. And music that's, that's more like a, an engaging concert, They just do much better in getting people in the door. There's simply more ways today, more effective ways of getting people in the door and keeping the church full. The problem is that that's just not the goal of the church and of ministry, uh, according to scripture. They've confused 
getting people into a church building with church growth. But just getting people in a church building is not church growth. Just because someone is in a church doesn't make them a Christian or part of the true church. Now, in a sense, the church's goal is church growth. The Great Commission tells us, make disciples. We want everybody to know and to follow Jesus. But you only enter the true church of Jesus Christ one way. And that's by new birth. That's the only way you enter is by salvation, by new birth. That's a supernatural work, though. Like, we, we don't have the power to grow the true church. You can fill a building all you want, but we just, we don't have the ability to fill the true church. I can't, I can't do that. I can't add to that with my own inventiveness. God, by his power, has to populate his church because he's in control of the new birth. And he does so when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. That's simply the means and the method he has chosen to draw people to himself. And that's why he's called and commissioned ministers of his church to do what? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Lord gave us this target to make disciples. And so that that goal is going to fully determine our message, our methods, and that that simply means faithfully preach the gospel. It's not up to us to change things. And furthermore, when people do enter the true church through conversion, it's not even mission accomplished. In another sense, it's really just mission begun. And that's because the target of discipleship is not reached simply when someone enters the church. Rather, that target of discipleship is reached when someone is fully conformed to the image of Christ. And that, that's going to be an ongoing, everlasting goal. And so the minister is just going to keep working. He's going to keep ministering that same gospel until every disciple is perfectly like Christ. That's just going to keep going. There's no call for change. We don't need to innovate that. That's just the ongoing goal and therefore mission of the ministry determined by the Lord. So overall, the the true minister's goal is not to fill a building with people. It is to fill a people with Christ and to make them full in Christ. And that target will determine everything the minister does. So we better get that right. And we want to do our part, making sure we get that right, that the target of ministry right. And we've got, we have our sights set on the right bullseye. And that comes by seeing the goal of ministry in Scripture. We'll do that this morning from Colossians 1. So you can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. One more time, and this time we really will finish up Colossians chapter 1. We've been in this last passage of chapter 1 for like three weeks But here at the end of his introduction, Paul is sharing his heart of ministry with the Colossians. At the beginning of chapter 2, he's going to apply that to them and to their situation. But first, he just wants them to know, you know, who he is and what he's all about since he had never met them. And at his core, Paul was a minister. He was a minister of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he was a minister of the gospel and a minister of the church. And Paul is wrapped up and consumed by this identity, which was the driving passion of his ministry. He he really cared for the church of Jesus Christ, which meant he he cared for all the churches. And that's why he was so interested and invested in in the Colossian church, even though he never met them. 
And so the Apostle Paul, he lays bare his heart of ministry here. And we who just read now, we benefit from this. We, we get this inspired look at a true minister. Because Paul, by God's grace and plan, he was a true and model minister of the gospel. And if anyone apart from the Lord Jesus is going to show us what it looks like to be a minister of the gospel, it's the Apostle Paul. And so from his personal testimony here and sharing his heart of ministry, over the past couple of weeks, we've been driving these seven marks of a true minister of Jesus that you might be encouraged. And so real quick, we've already covered verses 24 through 27. And from these, we've found the first four marks of a true minister. You've got first the minister's status. That true minister is a humble servant of Christ and his church. And secondly, the minister's suffering. The minister is so committed to the cause of the gospel. He's, he's readily willing to accept suffering on account of the church. And third, the minister's stewardship. The true minister is to deeply care for the church and is overseeing it until the Lord returns. And then fourthly, which was our sole focus last week, the minister's subject. And that the true minister is to primarily occupy himself with the preaching of the word. That is his main subject, to preach the word. And so now we're going to finish up today, though, with the, the final three marks of a true minister. Just round out this, this picture or portrait of a true minister that we might be encouraged. And from these final three, we'll see an emphasis on really the goal or the target of the ministry. It is this aim that guides and determines a minister's job and his methods in serving the church, he's trying to reach a goal, and we need to get this right. And so let's carry on now with this picture. And so this will be number five, really. This is the minister's strategy. Picking up where we left off, it's number five, the minister's strategy. We're going to pick up at verse 28. So if you're in Colossians 1, we're going to carry on now in verse 28. Final two verses. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And Paul carries on with a new sentence in verse 28, but it's really the same thought he's carrying through. He's still talking about his ministry and the focus of his ministry on preaching the word. Remember back in verse 25, his ministry was to preach the word. Verses 26, 27, the word itself is all about Jesus so therefore, his ministry is to preach Jesus. And that conclusion, now he just makes explicit here in verse 28, where he says, you know, we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ. Outside of scripture, this word proclaim was used of a messenger who would announce the games or an upcoming festival. And the job of the messenger was to take an important message and make it known publicly. This was a declaration of truth. It didn't matter if the people wanted to go to the games or not. It didn't matter how many people were interested in that upcoming festival. The messenger's job was just take the message and publish it far and wide, irrespective of your reception and the results. And so it goes for the gospel messenger or minister. He's a messenger sent on behalf of God just to tell people about Jesus. This proclamation is active, it's ongoing, and again, it has as its subject, Christ. We proclaim him. 
you know, the nearest antecedent to this, the, the, the nearest subject before this is Christ from verse 27. So he, he's talking about Christ. We proclaim Christ. And the minister is to constantly preach Christ to the people, showing them his person, his work, his teaching, his acts, his majesty, his glory. Now, our, our culture is largely tired of hearing about Jesus. They've heard Jesus preach for a couple hundred years, and they've been put off by unfaithful preaching or hypocritical preachers. But still, the minister's mission does not change with the rising or falling tide of the culture. He's just to carry on preaching Christ no matter what. And failure to do so is failure. And sadly, though, this is something we reflected on last Sunday night. It seems that many of the biggest pulpits in America, though, have been reduced to what might be called therapeutic, moralistic deism. And what that just means is, you know, there's churches that they're flying under the banner of Christianity, and they'll talk about God in, in general terms, but their central message is not the gospel. It's not Christ. Christ and his gospel are, are rarely preached. And said that the message there is just, you know, moralistic, therapeutic. Just do good and feel good. Just do, do good. Be a better person. That's the message. Just, just be better. And then, you know, feel better about yourself. But really, that, that's the opposite message of the Bible. I mean, if the standard is a criminal... Okay, I can do that. I can be good. But if the standard is the holiness of God himself, I I can't be good. I'm not that good. No one is that good. We all fall short. There's only condemnation there. But in the Bible, that is the standard. And so therefore, we have a problem. And it does no good to tell people, like, just try harder and feel good about yourself. Like You don't need to believe more in yourself. You need to believe more in Jesus. He's the only answer to that sin problem. In reality, there's none good, not even one, but Jesus came to die for bad people. He died on the cross to pay the full penalty of our sins. He rose again for our justification. That means we can be made right with God just purely on the basis of not our goodness or our effort, but his goodness and his effort alone. And that's why our only hope is Christ. That's why we preach Christ. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I want you to know. We just can't forsake that gospel or, or any part of it. The minister must preach Christ. Paul certainly preached Christ. No debating that, right? He was an unashamed preacher of Christ in his gospel. But that being said, he had a certain strategy you might say, of proclaiming Christ. I mean, how how do you preach Christ? How exactly do you go about proclaiming Christ? What does that even mean to to people? Well, in verse 28, Paul includes two participles here, which both modify and and clarify what it means to proclaim Christ. And you could say this reveals a simple strategy of proclaiming Christ. You see, first he says, admonishing every man. The word for admonish in the Greek is nuthateo. It's the word mind, nous, and then tithemi, to, to put, to place. It speaks of placing ideas in the mind. And it came to carry the meaning of, of warning or exhorting or admonishing. And this admonishment is not about filling someone up with 
plain facts or simple truths, but it's like how you should live in light of the truth. And 1 Thessalonians 5.14 calls us to admonish the unruly. All of us. Unruly. Someone's, whose life, someone's life is out of order. If you see a fellow Christian and they're out of order, they're, they're straying from the path, they're deviating from following the Lord, you're called to, in love, admonish them, warn them, just, just call them back on track. And especially if they're getting close to a cliff in their wandering from the Lord, we need to admonish them to, to come back, to love them enough to, to warn and exhort them. That's admonishing. But second, he also adds admonishing every man and teaching every man. It's the common word to dasko, meaning to instruct. And this teaching pertains to all the truths and doctrines of the Christian faith. You need to walk the way of the Lord, but we also need to know the way of the Lord. And this is sound doctrine, as Paul often puts it. And it's foundational to our Christian lives. The Lord himself made it a part of the Great Commission. That we are to make disciples, which means after baptizing them, we, we teach them to observe all that the Lord have, has commanded. We need to know who God is, what he's like, what he's done, and how he's revealed in Christ Jesus. And so the minister must therefore be a teacher at heart. just constantly filling up and instructing the, the people. And this is why, by the way, one of the defining marks of an elder or pastor is the ability to teach. So you could say this is the basic strategy of ministering Christ, proclaiming Christ. It's not complicated. For the minister, with one hand he teaches, with the other he admonishes. Sometimes he's going to take the truth of God's word. He's going to direct it to the mind of the people. He's filling it with who God is, what he's done. And other times, he's going to take the truth and direct it to the heart, exhorting them to now live in light of who God is and what he has done, that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And this twofold strategy of proclaiming Christ is essential, because if you have all teaching and no admonishment, it's going to lead to a cold, dead orthodoxy where people are they're puffed up in knowledge, they know a lot, but... They're cold in their love. They're unholy in their living. And at the same time, if you have all admonishment and no teaching, that leads to legalism where you have people, they're striving to be moral, but not, not from a foundation of truth and understanding. But instead, we need both. We're to be a people driven by the truth where we obey God from the inside out, from the heart, according to knowledge. And, and for this, teaching and admonishment are required. And keeping these two in balance takes wisdom. So Paul says, admonishing every man and teaching every man. He says, with all wisdom. And wisdom, it's the skill to, to know how to rightly apply God's word to, to daily real life. And God's people need wisdom to know how to live out the truth. The minister needs even more wisdom to, how do I feed people? God's truth. So they, they don't choke on it. They can digest it and really know it and live it out. He needs wisdom to balance his teaching and admonishing. And Paul himself exemplified this own strategy. You just read his letters in the New Testament. You see this clear pattern, something we call the, the indicative imperative distinction, where in all of his letters, they're all front-loaded with truth, the, the indicatives in the Greek verbs. It's just like all the, the teaching. 
He's telling the church about God, about Christ, about sin, salvation. He's just giving them heavy doses of truth. And there's very few commands in the first halves of, of his letters. But then uh, the second half, he switches it up. Because now the foundation of truth has been laid and that the concrete is settled. Now he opens the floodgates of admonishment. He's done the teaching. Now comes the admonishing of, you know, because of all that truth, because of what Christ has done for you, because of who you are in Christ, well, now here's how you must live. Teaching and admonishment, they always go together. And, and ministers would do well to emulate the strategy on how to proclaim Christ. You know what this means is for the church today, we don't need to shy away from sound doctrine. Seems like a lot of churches are scared of doctrine. And maybe it is too associated with those cold, dead churches. But no, the truth matters. Doctrine matters. And we should be passionate about knowing the whole counsel of the word of God. Like, I don't know everything the word says. And so we need instruction. The minister must instruct the people on sound doctrine. But he can't stop there. If he stops there, you're going to have problems. You're going to have lopsided Christians, but but rather after filling the mind with truth and after renewing the mind with sound doctrine, the minister must then exhort and admonish God's people to, to live it out. And that they will by the power of the Holy Spirit residing within them. But, but still, we, we need those clear calls and reminders to, to walk the walk and to obey God from the inside out to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so all in all, the minister cannot leave out the head or the heart. Last time I checked, we need both to live and to grow. And so he must minister to both, just continually serving Christ to both, the head and the heart, that we'd be just continually obsessed with Christ in our thinking and in our doing. Now, there's a reason for this, for this strategy. There's a purpose behind it. And so we can talk now about the purpose or the goal of the true minister, which is behind all he does. We can put it this way. This is number six now, a sixth mark of the true minister. The minister's standard. From his strategy now to the minister's standard. And go again to verse 28. We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. And he says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Here's where we see the standard of the goal Paul was trying to reach with his ministry. And in proclaiming Christ to every person, he has a target he's trying to hit. And this target involves a presentation. He's trying to present every man. That should ring a bell back from verse 22. If you look back at verse 22, that was the same goal Jesus had. He died to reconcile us that he might present us to himself, holy and blameless. That his rescue mission on the cross had an objective in view, this presentation of a people, a redeemed people to himself made perfect, like a bride made ready on her wedding day. And and the minister, now working on the Lord's behalf, well, he's going to share in that same mission, which has the same target 
presenting the people of God to the Lord, holy, blameless, perfect. Now, it's not like we have the power to make people holy, but but that's why we're preaching Christ after all. He, He has that power. But the minister must share this aim of presenting the church holy and complete. That's the standard, this presenting of the people to God complete. This is a big concern for Paul. Just listen to 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. He said to the Corinthian church, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You can see his concern for the church and their purity in truth and in practice. And he mentions in the next verse, the Corinthians, how easily they were led astray by another Christ, another spirit, another gospel. That's not okay. And the aim of the ministry, though, is to see them fully united to Christ, whereby they're, they're merely growing in their devotion to the Lord until, until their wedding day. And so all ministers must share this aim. Minister or pastor has to keep in mind, he's not dealing with his sheep. They're not his people. They're not his bride. They belong to the Lord. He's a steward, remember? The Lord has allotted to him a, a little sheepfold. He's just to watch over them until the Lord returns. He's going to have to present them back to the Lord someday. So he had better share the Lord's goal for those sheep of presenting them back complete in Christ. And speaking of, that's the specific target Paul says in verse 28. You can see again, his standard is to present every man complete in Christ. Your translation may say, Mature in Christ or perfect in Christ. Teleos is the word in Greek. It means complete or perfect or mature. The idea is it's just something that has achieved its desired end, its designed end or goal. Something is complete when it reaches its goal. And so for the Christian, what is the designed end for the Christian? And when God set out to redeem a people, he had a designed and desired end goal there. So what is it? Well, it's the same purpose to which we were called. It's the same purpose to which we were predestined. And that's what Romans 8.29 says. Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's, that's God's designed purpose in salvation, that this people would become conformed to the image of Christ. And we are complete in Christ when we arrive at that goal. Now you might think that's not going to fully happen in this life. And you'd be right. That God himself must finish this work, and he will, something called glorification. But nevertheless, the minister must have Christ-likeness as just his perpetual target in ministry. Even though he'll never fully reach it in his own life, he'll never fully see it in the lives of his people, still he's to constantly work toward that goal. He's helping people grow more and more into the image of Christ. 
Ephesians 4 affirms this, that God gave some as pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he give pastors and teachers for the ongoing ministry of the church? Well, to equip the saints and to build up the body of Christ. To what end? It says, until we all attain to the mature man, the fullness of Christ. The same word is used, teleos, perfect, mature, complete. Now, the minister's work continues until the church perfectly resembles Christ. And that work is not going to end until Christ returns. So the minister has just this target set up, this forever target of just keep ministering the gospel, the truth of Christ to the people of God and until they're just built up. He's going to keep doing that over and over again. But if he loses sight of that goal, though, if that goal changes or if that target is moved, you're going to have problems. That's not, that's not the Lord's purpose for the church. It's going to have disastrous results. I mean, look, if you switch targets and you just make the goal of your ministry about filling a building, well, look, you don't really need to stress too much the preaching of the word. I mean, it's not that serious. The Bible is more like a, like a helpful aid. It's got some nice stories in it. But, you know, it also confronts sin. It offends self-esteem. We can just leave those parts out. You see what I'm saying? Like if you lose sight of the goal of presenting the people back to the Lord complete and built up in Christ, you will quickly compromise the message and the methods of achieving that goal. But that's just going to lead to disaster in the eyes of God. He's not impressed by a building filled with a thousand goats. That's not church growth to him. And to the contrary, God has given his word, the the full counsel of his word, the whole thing, and he's given his spirit so that by their power that the minister might make every person complete in Christ. And this is simply the target that the Lord himself set, and he set it for every person in the church. And speaking of every person, did you notice in verse 28 what Paul repeated three times? He repeats every man or really every person three times. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And the false teachers in Colossae believed that that spiritual fullness was only for the elite. It's not for everybody. But Paul is preaching the mysteries of Christ as an open secret. Like it's, it's for everybody. And his goal was to reach everyone in the church, feed them the full counsel of the word of God, that they might all grow into the image of Christ. And this means the minister must treat the sheep all the same. This standard is for every single person in the church. Every person has equal value before the Lord. So he must not cater to the rich or the powerful. He must not spend extra time with those who, you know, do him personal favors, who might benefit him sometime down the, the road. No, the, this goal of presenting every person in, uh, in the church complete in Christ, that goal is irrespective of someone's societal class, their wealth, their, their worth. That means he will pour himself as much into the day laborer as the senator. It reminds me of Mark Dever's church in Washington, D.C. He has senators, congressmen in his church, but he is careful to, to treat the janitor with just as much ministry effort as the senator because the goal is for all of them. 
You know, the physician, he doesn't care if his patient is rich or poor. It's his duty to treat them and heal them the same nevertheless. And, and so it goes with the doctor of souls. This ministry is a lot of work. It's extensive in depth and breadth. And look, every time someone new enters the church, it starts all over again. Just continually restarts this goal of there's a new person. They're at, they're at ground level, but the goal is to present them complete in Christ. Well, here we go again. Just keeps going. Thankfully, though, the minister is given strength for this task. So we can finish with this final mark of a true minister. Number seven, the minister's strength. Number seven, the minister's strength. And Paul addresses this in verse 29. He says, for this purpose, I labor. Make stop there. Now, he says, for this purpose, he affirms His purpose here is to present every person complete in Christ. There's no doubt that's his purpose, to present every person complete in Christ. But to achieve that goal, what's it going to take? Well, labor, work. For this purpose, I labor. The Greek word for labor is kapos, referring to manual work. This is the word kopiao, which it's an intensified labor. It's talking about, it means to tire to wear yourself out it refers to wearisome toil. This word was used of a soldier in battle who is so exhausted he couldn't fight anymore. Or you think of boxers who they're just they're so out of breath, they're so spent they can barely throw a punch with any force. They're just they're they're exhausted. And so this is labor to the point of fatigue. And this is the word Paul uses, and he applies it to the ministry, the labor of teaching. And preaching, and shepherding, counseling, and admonishing, that all adds up. Not to mention, you know, persecution and affliction. And you add on top just the daily, the daily pressure of concern for the church. And you have a labor. You know, bearing the burden of yourself can be tiresome. But if your job is to bear the burdens of others as well, that can be tiresome. But the Lord needs workers in the fields. And he calls for ministers who will devote themselves to this work. This is why Paul advocated taking care of such ministers financially, that they can give themselves fully to this work. He says in 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. It's not just those who teach and preach. It's those who work hard hard. They've given themselves over to teaching and preaching. It's a labor to the point of exhaustion. Now, somewhere this changed because I think today, especially, I don't know, from my experience, it seems like most people view Christian ministry as, you know, that's, that's a carefree job for people who don't really want to work that hard. I heard a pastor recall how he was sitting in an airplane, sitting next to a stranger. The stranger struck up a conversation like, you know, what do you do? And the pastor replied, oh, I'm a pastor. And the other guy said back, oh, I see you couldn't get a real job. I think it's kind of typical. But many pastors in America have earned that reputation. I mean, if you give up the expositional preaching of the word, man, that frees up a lot of time in your week. I know some pastors, they just kind of throw together a message on Friday, literally, just Friday, maybe it's called the Saturday night special, like the Saturday night message is kind of put together real fast. It's not a big deal. 
But like, what do they do with the rest of the week? Not much. I know guys that play plenty of golf, take long lunches, answer some emails, maybe a little more golf. You know, nothing that can be confused with toiling to the point of exhaustion for the sake of the gospel. But not so for Paul. Now, Paul was the real deal. He was a true minister. And the true minister, likewise, must see the ministry as a labor. Now, labor of love, to be sure, he has to be passionate for this labor. Otherwise, he's going to burn out. But he still has to view the ministry as hard work. In addition, Paul has the word striving. If for this purpose I labor, striving. This is a well-known word, agonizomai. You might tell we get the word agonize from this. It means to fight and to struggle, to strive for something. Is used of athletic contests and battles where, where the contender just left everything on the field. And uh, you do not experience this striving walking through a park. No one agonizes just walking, casual stroll through the park. Now try climbing a mountain with a 40-pound pack and you know agonizing, you know striving. And that's the picture of the ministry. It, this is not a half-hearted walk through the park. It's not for the lazy. Striving is involved. Paul labors. Paul strives. But there is a key consideration here. You know, with all this in mind, the minister must view the ministry as labor, but not labor according to the flesh. He must not labor and strive simply according to his own strength and power. But rather, he must work by the Lord's power for the Lord's glory. And this is what Paul rounds out verse 29 saying, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And this is the minister's real strength. It's given by the Lord through the spirit to empower him for the work of the ministry. It's just like the Lord said to Zerubbabel, you know that, right? Back in the Old Testament, after the exile, he commissioned him with rebuilding the temple, which in that time, that was, that was an impossible labor. It seems like there's no way that's going to get done. But the Lord told him how he would do that labor. In Zechariah 4, 6, God said, not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit. That's how you're going to do this job. Zerubbabel, he still had like literal labor to do. He had to work and oversee the people, but... God assured him that he would provide the power and the strength, that the spiritual energy to, to do that work. And so it goes with the minister of the gospel. He must strive, but according to God's power. And this exposes the balance between sovereignty and responsibility in sanctification and in ministry. We've got to work out our salvation, but we also know it's God who's at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the minister must constantly keep this in the front of his mind so that his labor is not according to the flesh, but the spirit. And that he's not doing it for his own glory or attention, but the Lord's. And practically, this is going to translate into prayer. That the minister will foster a real prayer dependence on the Lord for the results of his work. And the farmer has a lot of work to do. Weeding, tilling, sowing seed, harvesting, it's all necessary work, but you know, the one thing he actually cannot do is make the plants 
grow. He's not in control of the sun or the rain. Those are up to God. And likewise, the minister cannot, he can't make a single person grow. He cannot make a single person respond to the gospel or his, his preaching. God must bring to life and God must cause growth by his Holy Spirit. I mean, you could prepare the greatest sermon ever, but if it's not bathed in prayer, seeking the Lord's blessing to use it, if it's not accompanied by the power of the Spirit, it's just going to fall flat. And so we all need God's grace at work in us to do his work. And Paul reflected in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. He says, I labored even more than all of them. But not I, but the grace of God within me. See, this is why even in the midst of ministry success, we give God all the glory. What did we really do? The critical factor belongs to the Lord. He gets the glory. He causes the growth. You've got to get this balance right in ministry. When you do, though, it leads to such a blessed peace and contentment in the labor. You still strive hard, but without the fear, without the stress, without all the pressure. Because the results aren't up to you. And that's a nice thing. And to many of you at your jobs, you might strive. You know, a lot of you work extremely hard. But I imagine some of you, you know, all the stress and all the pressure kind of makes it miserable. But in work and in ministry, if you can just trust the Lord to supply the power and then trust the Lord for the results, well, then you can labor without the stress, without the pressure. You can labor with joy. And that's a blessed thing. That God is faithful. He will build his church. We don't need to worry. But he does give us the blessing and the privilege to participate in his work. And so let, let us all do so, striving to serve with all of our gifts according to his power, and the minister especially. And so altogether, these have been the, the seven marks of a true minister of Jesus Christ. They're given to encourage you, if you remember from three weeks ago, because there's been no shortage of false ministers in the history of the church, employing the wrong motives, the wrong methods, the wrong message, the wrong mission. And that can be discouraging to see. But know again, God is faithful and that he will raise up godly men to serve him by serving his church. We've seen that in Paul himself. And let your faith be encouraged by such ministers. God will build his church. And as for you, as we've been reflecting on the past two weeks as well, you can do your part by encouraging your ministers, by praying for them. It's continuing you labor for them in prayer on their behalf. And also appreciating them. Listen to what Paul said to the Thessalonian churches. First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. He told them, he said, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He calls on the churches to respond, to encourage and appreciate those who labor over them in the ministry. Now, like I'm, I'm not trying to make this sound self-serving. It's just a part of scripture. And I can say as a side note, I'm very thankful, you know, that's not an issue at this church. 
And we're constantly encouraged by your love and your appreciation, your encouragement. You, you do make us feel very appreciated. We thank the Lord for that. But we are indeed called and reminded to appreciate those at all levels who display these marks of a true minister and, and diligently labor over us. And let's continue to do that. And in fact, just add a final thought here. You know, whether you bear the title of, of pastor or not, I would encourage you now to function more like, like this minister in the church. When you think about it, everything God calls the minister to do, he calls all his people to do to some degree. And if only more of God's people thought and functioned like shepherds, the church would be so much better off. And if only more people took up a, a passion to study and apply and then proclaim and teach and admonish with the word of God, that the body would be so much healthier and well-fed. And take it from Epaphras. Look, some of you might find it hard to relate to Paul's personal testimony. That's what this passage is. But like, look, we're not an apostle. We're not going to be like the apostle Paul. It's just in another league. But remember, Paul was not the minister of the Colossian church. Epaphras was. For everything we know, Epaphras was just a guy. He heard Paul preach. He was converted. He went back home to Colossae. Shared the gospel with some people. They believed. And the church was born. Epaphras just like fell into the ministry. He became their minister. He didn't know a lot. He knew more than them. So he started leading them, serving them, shepherding them. He just had the heart and the mind of a shepherd. And he just rose up to meet the need of the body. And that's what led Epaphras to travel to Paul in Rome behind this letter to receive counsel for the church. And that's what continued to drive Epaphras. You can just preview the end of the letter and you look at Colossians 4.12. Close to the end, Paul says in his final greetings or goodbyes, he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. You see him laboring earnestly. It's the same word, agonizomai. You see him with the same goal, that they would be perfect. Same word, talios, complete, mature. Epaphras was no Paul, but he was still a true minister. He's just a guy. But he was a true minister. And you can be too. The work of the ministry is not just for professionals. Just get that out of your mind. It's not for professionals. And it's my prayer that many in the church would rise up just to think and function more like the minister. To be servants of the church. Servants of his word and the gospel. Stewards. There to minister the word by teaching and admonishing and just catch on to the same goal of all ministry to present every person complete in Christ. You think that's just the goal of the pastor? That's the goal for the church. Therefore, that's the goal of, of all ministry. And so you consider now how you can partake in this grand mission given to us by the Lord to present every person complete in Christ until he returns if that's the goal of all ministry, you can pursue that in whatever ministry you do.
And then we all get the privilege and the joy of just being a, a worker in God's fields for his glory. So let's do that and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we do want to glorify you this morning in this work of the ministry that you've given to us. In a sense, some might say, you know, we're the ones laboring, we're the ones doing all the work, we're, we're the ones active in ministry, but we know, Lord, first, we're only here by your grace. You, you moved first, you, you, you sent Christ for us to die, to rise, to draw us to yourselves. We have been lost and cast out from your kingdom apart from Christ. And then, even on top of that, you equipped us with your Holy Spirit to enable us to do a work that we have no power to do. And that is to bring people to new life in Christ through the gospel and then to present them perfect in Christ. That supernatural work, you don't need us for that, but you're glorified by using just weak vessels to do that. And we glorify you by just being included in your plans for this world and for your church. And I pray our takeaway is just to be faithful, to all rise up in this ministry that belongs to the whole church of seeing one another just grow into Christ's image. I pray we all labor through our prayers and through our efforts to see one another made more like Christ each and every day. We know you'll be faithful in this work, and now may we be faithful to all be more like this true minister. We, th- we do thank you for those who lead, a- lead us and guide us Keep them going strong as well. And just bless your people as we seek after Christ until he comes again. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.